You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Chapter 23 of Genesis, in the life of Abraham. If you are just here joining us and you've not been with us on Wednesday nights, we're going through the life of Abraham. And tonight you come to uh, the death of Sarah. An entire chapter is spent on the death of of Sarah, on the death of the wife of the man of faith. On September the 6th, 1782, it was one year after Cornwallis had surrendered uh, the British troops at Yorktown to Washington, Jefferson writes in his diary, he's at Monticello and he writes these words, my dear wife dies this day at 1145. That was some 237 years ago this coming Friday. Uh, In the biography on Jefferson, if you've ever read anything about him at all, they all generally cover this and talk about this. He almost lost his mind. Uh, Jefferson could not deal with the grief and the loss of his wife. His daughter wrote and said that her dad was led from the room in a state of insensibility said he fainted and he remained unconscious for so long they thought he had had died as well. Uh, Then she talks about the fact that he stayed shut away in his room for so long, would not come out, but then when he did come out after weeks of being shut away in the room, he came out and he walked the halls of Monticello, uh, that uh, beautiful house that he built there. He walked them continuously until he would just collapse. And in exhaustion, he would collapse, and then he would get up, and he would continue to walk until one night he ran out of the house into the barn, jumped on the back of a horse, and he rode out into the darkness of the Virginia hillside. They eventually found him, but there was no consolation for Thomas Jefferson in the loss of his wife. There was no consolation because, you see, Jefferson did not believe in the resurrection of Christ. And he did not believe in heaven. And so he had no consolation whatsoever. He just grieved the rest of his life for the wife that he lost. Now, when I read that, I'm going to tell you two men that I think about. I always go back and I think about Vance Havner. When I was a boy, the first revival I remember, Vance Havner preached. I was six years of age. He was the great old Baptist evangelist. How many of y'all have ever heard of Vance Havner? Um, Just just those of us that are old. Uh, Which is sad because Vance Havner was one of the greatest evangelists. He started a revival on one Sunday morning and he would end it on the next Sunday morning. Uh, And he was a gaunt figure. As I remember him, I can remember seeing him stand in the pulpit at my home church he was a gaunt figure. He was, he was prophetic. He was like a prophet. Um, uh, but his wife died on a Sunday morning at 2.45 in the morning. And he was in the pulpit nine hours later, preaching. And he said this, I cried like nobody's business, but you haven't lost anything when you know where it is. Death can't hide. It can only divide. The other person that I think about became a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. E.V. Hill, the great African-American preacher who became the pastor of uh, the Mount Zion 
Metropolitan, you know, they've got names that are this long for those African-American churches from the men out of that generation. They had these long names. It was a Baptist church. I got to know him, Deb and I did, he and his second wife, but I heard the funeral of his first wife. Um, uh, Evie Hill was so unusual. There's no way to describe him. You need to go find a tape of Evie Hill and just listen to him preach. He preached his wife's own funeral. And uh, the passage that he preached was out of Job chapter one. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he repeated that through the entire sermon. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, when you come to the 23rd chapter of Genesis, you come to the man of faith and the woman of faith and to the death of uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah. She was 127 years of age. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 23, Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. And she died in Kiriath Arba, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Uh, She was with Abraham all of those years that he followed God. And uh, there are some timeless truths in this chapter You know, normally I'd skip this. Normally I'd do this at a different time, but I don't want to skip this because there's some timeless truths in this chapter that I want us to hear. Just three of them that I'm going to give you tonight. Just three things that I've picked up out of this passage. And one, the first one is this, is separation for us as believers is inevitable. In other words, we're all going to die. What happened to Sarah here is going to happen to us. She was 65, Abraham was 75 years of age when he left Ur. She was 65 years of age when she left Ur of uh, Chaldea. And for about 62 years, she had been the companion of Abraham. She had been his wife. She had been his best friend. She had been the one there that was beside him the entire way. Uh, Now, she wasn't perfect. Nobody is except for the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, she made mistakes along the way. She was the one uh, who suggested that Abraham take Hagar and have a child by Hagar, and that way he could have the child that he wanted. She suggested that. Uh, Although I imagine she was sick of hearing Abraham groan about it, she was the one that suggested it. There was the incident down in Egypt where it wasn't just Abraham that lied to Pharaoh. She lied as well. If you go back, you'll read that she also stated that she was his sister. That happened all over again with Abimelech. Uh, It was uh, two of the big moments in their marriage that you have to wonder how in the world would a marriage hold up after something like that. It was Sarah that laughed at God. Now, I want to tell you, that's one thing I don't think I'd want to do. But she laughed at God. You remember? And then when God asked her about it, she lied to God about it. Uh, so she wasn't a perfect woman, but let me, let me tell you some interesting things about her. I told you this whole chapter is about her death. We don't even get that for Mary, the mother of Jesus. You don't get that for anybody else. No, no one else, no other woman in Scripture do you get an entire chapter. She has the longest death and burial described of a woman in all of Scripture, Old and New Testament. 
She's the only woman in Scripture that we're told to, to look to as a model of faith. In fact, we're told that in the Old Testament. We're told that in the New Testament. There are interesting things. I was just thinking a moment ago, a passage that just hit me. First Peter chapter 3. Listen to this. We're told this. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Isn't it interesting that Peter picks up Sarah and in his discussion about the husband-wife marriage relationship, he turns to Sarah and he says, this woman treated her husband the right way. Um, She was an unusual woman. She is the model of faith. Uh, She was singled out in scripture as the one to say, here's an example. If you're looking for a woman of faith, you look to this woman right here. However, the day came when she died because separation, death for all of us is inevitable. We are all going to die. And Abraham went to the door of her tent and he sat down there and we're told this, he wept. He went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. That's at the end of verse 2. Now, uh, all those years of walking together, I I didn't add it up, but uh, from the time they left Ur to she was 127, she was 65. Somebody do the math real quick. What is that? Um, 62 years. 62. Okay, I did do the math. I said that a minute ago. 62 years. Those 62 years, they walked that path together. They walked that walk of faith together. They spent those years together. We're not told that when Abraham left Ur that he wept about that, that he left his home, he left his family. We're not told that when his father died that he wept over his father. I remember I did not weep when my father died. Uh, I had to hold myself together to get my two sisters through the whole thing and to preach my dad's funeral. You know when I wept? It was was, uh, about a month later when I was on a plane flying out of London to Germany to teach in the school there for a week that when I flew over the English Channel, I thought I'm flying on a Boeing 737 in comfort in air condition, and the last time my dad crossed this, he was on a transport ship headed for the invasion of Europe. And I sat there in a seat, and I cried like a baby. The girl next to me thought I'd lost my mind. Uh, Debbie was sitting across the aisle from me. We were in two aisle seats. And I sat there, and I could not help it. That that was when I wept. Abraham never, we're never told that he cried when his father died. We're not told that he wept when he took Isaac. We looked at that last week. We're not told that he wept. When God told him, you take your son, your only son, Isaac, to a mountain, I'll show you, and you sacrifice him there. We're not told that he wept then. We're not told that he wept when he had to go look at Hagar and Ishmael, and he loved them, you know, and he had to tell them, you've got to leave. You can't stay here, and he had to send them away. We're not told that he grieved or he mourned or he wept then. 
But here we're told that he wept. Now, let me tell you what they would do. There would be three days of intense mourning and weeping and three days of moderate mourning and weeping. Six days, nearly a week that they would mourn. Uh, Three with intensity, three with moderation. And that's what he did. He went and he sat in the doorway of the tent of Sarah and there for six days he wept for that woman. Now, you know, there are a lot of people in the Christian life who will tell you that in the Christian life, you'll never, you never endure any hardship. You never have any struggles. That if you're walking by faith, you're never going, you're not even going to get a cold. And I'm thinking of a guy that's on television right now who said something that lame. Uh, You're not going to have, I haven't had a cold in 30 some odd years. I haven't, you got enough faith. You don't have any of this. Well, I mean, what are you going to do with Abraham when Sarah dies then? Let me tell you something. The Christian life is full of hardship and struggle. We face difficulty as the people of God. We're not exempt from the stuff that happens in life. All, listen, there are numbers of you in here that could testify to that better than I can. Numbers of you here that could get up here and preach this better than I can. But the fact of the matter is, that's just lame. This is here in the Word of God because God's people do struggle. They go through difficult times. We endure hardship. And listen, let me tell you something beyond that. There are people, and I've heard them say it. I've heard Christians through the years say, don't cry. It's a sign of a lack of faith. Don't, don't cry because it's a sign of immaturity. Don't cry because it's a horrible witness to Jesus Christ. Well, what do you do with Jesus in Luke chapter 15 when it says Jesus wept? What do you do with that? What do you do when it speaks of Peter going out and weeping? What do you do in Acts when it says that the Ephesian elders gathered together and when they would see Paul no more, they just sobbed? What do you do with Abraham, the father of all the faithful, who sits here for six days and he grieves and he weeps and he cries? There's something redemptive about tears. And let me just tell you, it's okay to cry. It's nothing sissy about it at all. Abraham lost his wife, she died, and he wept. Separation is inevitable. Now let me give you the second thing, and the second thing is this, grief is inevitable. We're all going to experience grief at some point in our lives. Abraham did, and I think he experienced grief of two kinds, and I want you to listen to this carefully. We're not told this in the text, but I am almost certain that he experienced two kinds of grief. One was the grief of pure affection. He had lost the love of his life. He had lost his wife. He had lost Sarah. He loved her. I can imagine the six days that he sat there in the doorway of her tent that he thought about the young man that he was when he married her. I can imagine that he went back in his mind and he thought about her as the young bride and he was the young group. He thought about the time that they spent together as a young couple. I'm sure that he thought about all the years, all the work that they had done together, everything that they had built up there in Ur. And I am certain that he thought back about that moment when he walked in and he told Sarah, God has spoken to me 
and we've got to pack up and we've got to move. We've got to leave. We've got to leave our family. We've got to leave our home. We've got to leave everything that we have worked for and built here in this place. And do you know what? Sarah never, we're never told that Sarah looked at him and said, Abraham, you have lost it. You are crazy. If you think I'm going to leave, you're out of your mind. If you think I'm going to move and leave my family, you're out of your mind. She never said anything like that. We never hear that Sarah chastised him. You never hear that Sarah argued with him. You never hear that Sarah said, you've got to prove this to me. You never hear her complain about any of this. She followed Abraham as Abraham followed the call of God for those 62 years. She faithfully followed in with him and she became, listen, she didn't just follow him. She became his spiritual partner as much as she was anything else. Now, I want to tell you something. My wife's not in here. She's over there teaching young couples tonight on how to whoop your kids. No. Uh, on how to discipline children. I, I don't know what she's teaching. She's doing something with young people about children tonight. My wife, in my life next to the Holy Spirit, I have n- no one who walks with me in spiritual matters like she does. She is a spiritual strength to my life. Do you understand that in your marriage, that's exactly what God intends for y'all to be as husband and wife? We always use this, men do, iron sharpens iron. Well, that applies to you and your wife or you and your husband as well. You should always sharpen each other. You should always, listen, be in the word of God together, be in prayer together. That's what Sarah was for Abraham. She was not just his life partner, she was his spiritual partner as well. He grieved out of a grief that I am certain was that he had lost the love of his life. But now there's a second kind of grieving I think he did. I think he grieved the grief of regret. I think he grieved the grief of regret because some of the things that I've already talked about and already shared, I think he went there and he sat down outside her tent for six days and he wept and he mourned and he thought about the regret of issues that had happened in their marriage. Now, if he didn't think about that thing down there in Egypt with Pharaoh, sure he did. He certainly turned around and thought about it again that I did the same dumb thing with Abimelech. I lied. I was more concerned about saving my hide than saving her honor. Not once, but twice. I am certain that he thought to himself, even though it was Sarah's suggestion that I take Hagar, I had this relationship with another woman And I know it hurt her. I know it did because she eventually came to the place to where she couldn't take it. I'm sure he lived through that. I'm sure he wept through that. I know that he thought about those moments that he regretted and that he wished he could have had that time to do it over again. Now, I want to tell you something. As a pastor, I have literally stood at the graveside and had people collapse on me sobbing if I could just have them back for an hour. 
if I could just take back what I said, if I could just say some things to her, to him that I did not say. I've been there as a pastor, and I'm going to tell you something. They don't teach you this in seminary. They don't teach you what to say in moments like that. What do you say in moments like that? F.B. Meyer said this, if you have noble sentiments that you want to ask for forgiveness and make explanations, you had better do it now. Abraham grieved, and I think he grieved with both kinds of grief. I think we all do. I think, we all, I think that is natural to all of us. Now, before I leave that, I want to do one other thing with this. And I've got one other point. Let me take you to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Put your finger back there in Genesis chapter 23. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And uh, here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, listen to, uh, listen to Solomon. No The birds did not write this back in 1960s. Solomon actually wrote it. They stole it from him. There's an appointed time for everything, and there's a a time for every event under heaven. Now listen to what he says when he gets down to verse 4. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. I think Solomon has given us some good advice there, and I want to point you back. Now go back. Just with that in mind, go back over here now, if you would, back to Genesis 23, and let me show you something in verse 3. In verse 3 of Genesis 23, after all of this, let me just read it again. Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kiriath Arbor, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. But now watch, with that in mind that I just read you out of Ecclesiastes, look at verse three. Then Abraham rose from before the dead. He got up. Uh, You know, I'm just telling you things that I've experienced through the years as as a pastor. Uh, There are those who take their feelings and they just stuff them. Now we all grieve in different ways. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is just stuffing your feelings, bottling your feelings up, never expressing your feelings. And I want to tell you something, that is not healthy. It's not good for you and it's not healthy. But the other side of that is this, I have seen people that have grieved and they never get beyond grieving. They grieve and they grieve and they grieve and you, and you think, well, it's been a year now, it's been two years now, it's been five years now, and you think, surely they're going to get beyond the grieving, and they never get beyond that point of grieving. There are just some people like that, and I want to tell you, that's not happy either, and that's what Solomon's saying. There's a time to weep, there's a time to mourn, and there's a time to do what Abraham did, and that is get up from before the dead and move on with life. Phyllis Silverman is a behavioral psychologist, Christian. I want you to listen to what she says. There are three stages. Now, I don't know if this will help anybody or not, but there are three stages that she goes through. Now, I'm aware, you know, there are other people who say there's six stages to grief. There are nine stages. There are some people who've got 27 stages of grief. If Charles Stanley's preaching on it, he's got 35 points to everything. But she says there are three stages, basically, and these are the three stages. 
Number one, the first stage is that stage of impact or just numbness. You, you're, you're in shock. You can't believe it happened. It, you're trying to process it. You really can't think through it. You're just kind of numb. The second stage is the stage that you go through where you just simply recoil. I just want to withdraw. I want to withdraw. I want to, I want to just get away from everybody else. I want to go to my room. I don't want anybody else in here. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to see anybody. And we just kind of recoil. Now, let me tell you something. A lot of people get stuck in one of these stages. And they, and they can't progress on through it because they're just stuck. They're just stuck in, I, I can't live in reality. It really didn't happen. Or they're just stuck in, I'm shutting myself off from everybody. I am, I'm just closing myself off from everybody else. The third stage, and it's, it's normal to move through all of these. You need to get to that third stage, which is accommodation, which is what Abraham does right there in verse three. You get up and you move on with life. He's going to live 45 more years. By the way, Abraham's going to get married again, and he's going to have more children. Men. Just men. What can you say? Well, there you go. Separation is inevitable. Grief is inevitable. But now let me bring you to the third part of this, and it's how God's people respond in the midst of separation and grief. How do we respond? Well, let me, let me show you three things that he does here. One is going to be who he is. He's going to basically explain and talk about who he is. He comes and he's going to go to the sons of Heth. Those were Canaanites. That's the area that he's in. Down in Hebron, he's with uh, these, um, well, they're just called the sons of Heth, these Canaanites that live and own that part of the land of Canaan. And he comes to him, and look at what he says here. He says, I'm a stranger and a sojourner among you. Now, he's got the right concept, and that is this. In the midst of death, I don't know that there's another time in life when you realize it more than when you stand at the grave of somebody you love and you come to realize, you know what? This life isn't permanent. I'm not going to live on this earth forever. Uh, this earth really is not my home. Peter does that when he comes in 1 Peter chapter 1, and he's writing. He uses a little different word. He uses the word alien there, but he writes and he says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. That is, you are the people of God. You're living in this world, but this world is not your home. You're an alien here. You're a stranger here. You're a sojourner here. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter, I think it's 11, uh, where he speaks of Abraham. Hebrews chapter 11, listen to what it says. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob and fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God." 
Now, he, he lived with this understanding. That's what he's saying. He's saying this, this is not my home. I'm not going to live here forever. I, I'm a sojourner. I'm a stranger. The New Testament calls it an alien. And that's, that's probably the healthiest view that you and I can have as Christians when this old world gets too strong of a grip on us, realize this, this ain't home. In other words, you ain't home yet. You're not home yet. So realize that all of this stuff that we cling to and that we're so proud of and that we polish and that we ooh and ah over and we spend so much of our life attaining, this none of this is going to go with us. None of it. I told you Sunday, God's going to burn it all up. Y'all, did you, you, you've known Charlie Tremendous Jones. Some of you guys, anybody in insurance in here? He was one of these great motivational speakers, Charlie Tremendous Jones. He won all these awards. I mean, everywhere he went, he was speaking everywhere. Everybody wanted to get him. Man, he was making huge money, made millions of dollars, he had the basement of his home. He had all this stuff lined up, all these plaques, all these awards, all these trophies, everything that had been given to him. And he said, one day he walked down there into that big room where all of these things were. And he said, God just said, Charlie, not so tremendous Jones. I'm going to burn all this stuff up one day. There you go. That diploma that hangs up. I got my wife. I don't know. I didn't know she was doing it. She put all these diplomas of mine up above that window that's in my office. And I go in there and I'm reminded every time I walk in there, that's just a piece of paper that not one church I've ever pastored ever asked me to look at. <laughs> Nobody's impressed with it. Nobody's impressed with it. Well, the second thing is this, is what he believed. Look at what he believed. He said, I'm in the middle of verse four, give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The sons of Heth answered Abraham saying to hear, hear us, my Lord, you're a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. So Abraham rose and he bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth, and he spoke with them saying, if it's your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me. And approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field for the full price. Let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. Now, I'm going to tell you, I understand this because I have for the last 40 years been to Israel about two dozen times. And I have dealt in business with some of those guys. This is exactly the way they deal. Um, and I'm not talking about the Jews. I'm really talking about the Palestinians. Um, that's what they're, bar they're bartering here. And they're trying to gain, even in the moment of death, they're trying to gain some kind of control over Abraham. When they come in verse 6 and they say, hear us, my Lord, you're a mighty prince among us. Just take whatever you want. Just take it. Just take it. Now, let me tell you, I've got a number of friends that are, 
there in Israel that I've been doing business with for 30 years. And uh, when we moved into the house, Debbie wanted a couple of rugs to put on the floor. And, I'd, and so we went. And I, I told Shweki, I said, Shweki, listen, Deb, uh, she wants some rugs for the house. He said, my friend. When they start doing it, my friend. Um, he said, I'll send a car to the hotel and pick you up. Come back after work, after hours. I close up. Well, so I, I thought, well, gosh, that, I'm, I know what that means. This is going to cost. So we go back there. They send a car. We go back there. You come in. You sit down. You always have to have tea. And we had tea. And then here come these guys, and they just start throwing these rugs out, rolling these rugs out, bringing them out, laying them out, bringing them out, laying them out, you know. And that's... And he is my friend. He is a, he is a good guy. And um, Shweki looks at me and he just says, hey, because I've told him now for an hour, I've said, Shweki, I'm a, pre- I'm a Baptist preacher. I don't have any money. You know, you're bringing out all these silk rugs and he brings them out and he brings them out. I said, look, I, I can't do, I can't afford all of this. And after an hour or so, he turns around and looks at me and this is what he says. Pay me what you want. That's what they're saying here. Just pay me what you want. You, you decide. Pay me what you want. Now, I had an old Jew tell me, when they get to that point, you'd better shut up. Don't you take it. Don't you do it. Abraham doesn't do it. Do you see what he does here? He comes back and he says to them, he gets up, he bows down, and look at what he says. Give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of the veil, for the full price. Let him give it to me. Now notice this. In your presence. We're going to count the silver out in your presence. You're going to all see this transaction. It's not going to be done just the two of us over here on the side. This is the amazing thing. He's going to buy this piece of real estate. The cave of Machpelah. And you say, well, what's so important about that? It's this. That's the only piece of the promised land Abraham ever owns. That's the only thing. A cemetery, a a mausoleum. It's the only piece of the promised land he ever owns. And he says, I am going to buy it and I'm going to bury my wife here as an act of faith to show I believe and trust that God is going to give me everything around that cave one day. That I'll own everything else around it. God said it. I don't own it yet. And all I'm going to have is that one little mausoleum there, that one little gravesite. that's going to be the only thing I'm going to get. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to buy it because I trust that God's word is true. Now listen, Sarah is buried there. I've been, to the, I've been to the tomb of Abraham and Sarah there in Hebron. It's not a safe place to go, but I've been down there on, on a couple of occasions. Uh, Sarah's buried there. Abraham's buried there. Isaac is buried there. Rebecca is buried there. Jacob is buried there. Leah is buried there. Rachel, you remember, is buried up in Bethlehem. She dies in childbirth with Benjamin. Leah and Jacob are buried there, and 400 years later, 
when Moses brings those Jews out of Egypt, they got something else with them. You remember the last chapter of Genesis? When Joseph tells his brothers, you take my bones up from here and you take them over there, Moses carries the sarcophagi that contains the bones of Joseph and they take it to Hebron to the cave of Machpelah and they bury Joseph there. Now all of that, now look, all of that, do you know what he's doing in this whole thing? He's building a memorial. He's building a legacy. He's building a memorial. He's building a monument. He's building a heritage here that he is leaving and passing down to the rest of his family. Listen, in those 400 years there in Egypt, one Jew, one father would whisper to his son, and that son would eventually one day whisper it to the grandson, and it's this. There is a place over in Hebron. In the cave of Machpelah is buried the son of the promise. And one day we're going to be back there too. That's what he was doing. He built a monument. He left a legacy. He built a heritage. He said, I'm going to trust. I don't have any bit of this. I'm going to trust that God's going to give it to me. You know, the interesting thing is if you get to the 32nd chapter of Jeremiah, Jeremiah does the same thing. In the 32nd chapter of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is in prison. And his cousin comes to him. Now, he's the last of the red-hot salesmen, the cousin of Jeremiah. He comes to him, and he says, hey, have I got a deal for you. Buy the ground, buy the family uh, plot there in Anatoth. Buy the property. Well, you know who happens to be on the property in Anatoth when this guy comes to sell it to Jeremiah? The Babylonians, they're invading Jerusalem. They're circling the city. They're on the family land in Anathoth, and here's Jeremiah's cousin who comes to him in jail and says, here, I'm going to sell it to you at a great price. Have I got a deal for you today? And you know what God tells Jeremiah? Buy it. Buy it. Get the deed and take the deed and go put it in a jar and set that jar down in the ground, bury that thing out there because this is a sign that Jews will come back to this land and they will buy this land and they will live in this land again. And Jeremiah did it. You know why? Because he trusted the word of God when the Babylonians were sitting on that piece of property. This is more fascinating than anything you're going to go home and watch tonight. I am telling you, it is more fascinating. F.B. Meyer, I mentioned him earlier. You know what F.B. Meyer did? F.B. Meyer was a great preacher in England. He came to the United States a good bit. He was great friends with D.L. Moody. They preached around the world. He pastored Christ Church. If you've ever been to London, Christ Church is still standing. It's pretty impressive. The big tower of it is, is, is really impressive. Uh, he wrote, you know, 30-some-odd books, 40-some-odd books. F.B. Meyer, in the last days, the last years at Christ Church in the 1890s, somewhere around 1897, 1898, said this. And looking at all of this, he said, 
one day looking at Israel, all the land of Israel in F.B. Meyer's day, in the end of the 1800s, all of that land was part of the Muslim empire. It was part of that whole empire of, of the Ottoman Empire, the Muslims. They owned all of that. Every bit of that was theirs. And F.B. Meyer said in a sermon that one day Jews are going to be back there in that land because the Word of God says it. Was it May 17th, 1948? when they came back as a nation for the second time in history and about 50, what is that, 50 years after F.P. Meyer said that, it happened. And after the Babylonian captivities, they did come back under Nehemiah. And so with Abraham, God said, you can trust my word. And Abraham built a monument. He left a legacy. Now, let me ask you something. Are you doing that? Are you leaving a legacy? Are you leaving a godly heritage for your children? Most of you know I have about 11,000 volumes in my library. Uh, we've had difficulty finding place for my library since I've been here, but we've got it all pretty much squared away. Now, you say, why do you, why do you have something like that? I'm going to tell you part of the reason I have something like that. It's my daddy had an eighth grade education. But every night my daddy stopped by my room and he usually would flip on the light, you know. And I'm ducking my head under the cover, you know, and he would say, have you read your Bible today? Did you read your Bible today? And he would tell me, if you read that Bible in the King James Version, if you read that King James Version, you can read any piece of literature ever written. Get up and read your Bible if you hadn't read it. Now, my dad had no education, but he had a library. And I watched my dad study for Sunday school as he taught Sunday school for 50 years. And I'd watch my dad two nights a week spend at least three hours each night studying for that Sunday school lesson. And he'd have books out, he would have papers out, and he'd have all this kind of stuff out. And it left an indelible impression on my mind to build a library around the Word of God. He left a legacy. He didn't leave me any money, but he left a legacy. He left, he left a heritage when I walked out of my office a little bit ago, my two oldest grandsons were in there grabbing a book and they were putting it over on the desk and they were opening it up and they were looking, I want to build a legacy in these kids to read the right kind of thing and to build a life on the right kind of thing. Do you know 47 years ago, there were some people in this area that wanted to plant a church and they poured their life and their heart and their prayers and their finances and their energy into it. And you are sitting in the legacy and the heritage of those people that have long died and gone on to glory. They trusted. They couldn't see this. They never could see these lights. They couldn't see Jim over there, Jim over there, people sitting in here. But you know what? They trusted God. 
and they built a legacy. And the question is, are we building a legacy and leaving a heritage? Father, thank you for the men and women that have gone before us like Abraham, who so believed that they didn't have to have proof. Uh, They didn't have to have constant updates, but they trusted you. They lived by faith that what you said would come to pass in your time. Thank you, Lord, for Abraham. Thank you for Sarah. Thank you, Lord, for the story. Thank you for putting this chapter in your word. It's sobering. It speaks to us. It speaks to us on something we don't normally like to talk about, and yet, Father, it's a reality, and we need to hear it. Thank you, Lord, that you never leave us, that we're never left alone in the midst of grief. We're never left alone in the midst of hardship and struggle and difficult. We're never left alone when we're facing a crisis because your word assures us that you never leave us and you never forsake us. Your word assures us that we can cast all our cares on you because you care for us. And Father, there's some here tonight who need just to know that, uh, that you do not leave them and that you care for them and that you hold them as your word says, in the hollow of your hand and that they're being prayed for. So thank you, Lord, for a Wednesday night and for your word and for the family that's gathered together here. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at